This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. Throughout London, it's the greatest city in the world. And this is the greatest art station in the greatest city in the world. Is that great enough for you or is that grating? Anyway, how are you doing? Tis I, Nicholas of Hennigan. How are you doing? Uh, uh, with Literary London. Literary London is, um, well, it's a new programme for now, although, in fact, you may know that Literary London was here for a few years. Uh, and then I took the summer off. I took the summer off to write my screenplay. You know how these things are. Or maybe you don't. But if you listen to Literary London over the next uh, ooh, few weeks and probably a few months, you'll learn a lot more about writing screenplays because we'll be talking to authors there's London Book Week happening, the London Book Fair. Uh, we're going to be talking about methods of writing and we're going to be playing some poetry and uh, bits and bobs of new writing as well. So it's kind of a literary London. It's all in the title, really, isn't it? Yes, it's about literature and it's about London. Um, as ever, if you'd like to get involved, it'd be great to hear from you. You can email me. It's probably the easiest uh, is to email radio at Maverick Theatre, Maverick Theatre is one word, uh, .co.uk, radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. Um, and uh, well, it's just a bit of a mess. You may remember we used to kind of, you know, we'd, we'd start rocking, <laughs> rocking the literature thang every uh, Friday night at seven o'clock. Our new time is now. So it's going to be Thursdays at five o'clock. And then this program is repeated every Monday at 11.30 in the morning. So if I'm new to you, how are you? You're looking very attractive. Yeah. Oh, it's stereo, you see. I can tell. And we're on digital. Yeah. Yeah, you look lovely. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, um, so, well, there's a couple of events, I suppose, that we're going to look at this week. Uh, one is the opening of The Plough in the Stars, which, by the way, I haven't seen yet. You didn't invite me. Uh, at the Lyric Hammersmith <laughs> uh, by Sean O'Casey, a famous Irish play. And guess what? No, I haven't got anyone from the Lyric Hammersmith because you didn't invite me. But I have got Sean O'Casey. Yep, Sean O'Casey himself talking about his play, The Plough and the Stars, and the riots that happened when it first uh, premiered in Dublin. So perhaps a, perhaps a theatre story, but no, I think not. I think it's a writer's story. Uh, and of course, perhaps the other big event in literature this week isn't necessarily London-focused, although there is a London twist to it, and that is that it was 50 years ago this week that Martin Luther King was assassinated by some nutter. Uh, a white supremacist took his life 50 years ago. Uh, and of course, Martin Luther King was a brilliant orator and in a sense a brilliant writer too. He actually did come to London. Yeah, he was known for his leadership of the civil rights movement. And then in 1964... He was uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was on his way to Norway to collect his Peace Prize. Uh, but he was invited by St. Paul's canon uh, John Collins of St. Paul's Cathedral to come to the cathedral and give a talk. And so he did. He uh, took a break from his, uh, his trip to Norway, flew into London... And on the morning of the 6th of December, 1964, Martin Luther King addressed a congregation of 4,000 people from the cathedral pulpit, and he delivered his sermon. Now, the sermon was called The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life. Uh, now, it's a very stirring sermon, but it goes on for oh, nearly an hour. But I thought we must celebrate, must we not? 
Yes, we must. We must celebrate this great occasion. And what a brilliant orator Martin Luther King was. And so this is kind of, and I don't wish to trivialise it in any way, shape or form, it's just wonderful, the passion of this speech, which I'm sure you will have heard before. I was watching it on the television, and it moved me quite a lot. See what you think. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. 
so let freedom reign. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom reign. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom reign from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Impossible not to be moved by that, isn't it? The great uh, Martin Luther King and I have a dream and it sends shivers down my back every time I hear that. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thank you for your company. If you'd like to get in touch, if there's a poem you'd like to hear, if you've written some stuff yourself uh, that you'd like us to talk about, then do get in touch. Email's probably the easiest. Radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk dot uk um we've got all sorts of stuff coming up in the next few uh, weeks and months the edinburgh festival i'm taking not one show but two shows up to the edinburgh festival that i've written and i'm directing their uh, shakespeare variations london book fair is happening but at the moment at the lyric hammersmith and celebrating the 100th anniversary of the irish easter up Rising is a play called The Plough and the Stars by Irish writer Sean O'Casey. It was first performed on the 8th of February 1926 at the Abbey Theatre in the writer's native town of Dublin. And the first two acts take place in November 1915, looking forward to the liberation of Ireland. The last two acts are set during the Easter Rising in April uh, 1916. Um, and I thought. I'd play this. I haven't actually seen the production. They didn't invite me. Have I got that point across? Lyric Hammersmith. Put me on your list, loves. Uh, but uh, when the play first opened, it caused something of a riot. And so, no one from the Lyric Hammersmith is here to talk about it, but the writer himself. This is Sean O'Casey. I kid you not. Sean O'Casey himself talking about his work in 1962. What happened the first night Plough and the Stars Open. I understand that's quite a story. Well, it is quite a story, but it's it's been recited so often that it's um, a bit tedious now. A twice told tale, you know? Yes. Fixing the dull ear of a drowsy man. That's what the story about the riots that took place in the theatre and the production of the Plough and the Stars is. It was just a violent reaction on the part of the nationalists that didn't like the critical nature of the play and assaulted the stage and attacked the actors. And the actors fought back and Yeats came out and denounced them all. And 
said they uh, they had misbehaved themselves again, <laughs> and finally called in the police because there was no possibility of quelling the disturbance. There were hundreds of people, men and women, even, trying to get onto the stage and pull the curtains down and wreck the place. <laughs> it wasn't an uncommon occurrence in Ireland. It occurred with Sings. Sings play there before mine, the play by the Western world. And it occurred uh, in this old uh, 19th, 18th century theatre, Smock Alley, in Dublin, when the final end of that theatre was they set fire to all the chairs <laughs> and furniture, and the whole theatre went up in smoke and fire because they, they didn't like a play that was being produced. What is the background to reason that you won't allow your place to be put on in Ireland now? Well, it's... Uh, there was a festival to be held in Ireland in 58 called Dantostal, which is an Irish word meaning gathering together for entertainment, you know, Toastal. And uh, I was, I'd written a play at the time called The Drums of Father Ned, and the chairman of the committee of the council heard of it, and he asked me would I send it to him for consideration. And I said, well, I was very reluctant to do so, but after several letters I decided to let him see it. And I sent him the script. It was in manuscript at the time. I sent him the script, and he was delighted. It was just the play he wanted, to cap and crown the festival. And that was all right. I was grievable to me, and... Everything went on all right, till a week before the, uh, a couple of weeks before the toastal was to begin. And suddenly the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Dublin publicly announced that he wouldn't permit any priest in his diocese to say a vote of mass for the toastal if any play by O'Casey or Joyce were produced during the event, during the festival. So that started all the pious people protesting. All the religious societies got up on their hind legs and demanded that the play be rejected. And, and uh, Joyce's play that was going to be done was to be thrown out. And the committee took fright and worked in such a way that I decided to withdraw the play. And because there was no protest made against the Archbishop's ban, I decided to ban all my plays in Ireland for the future, professional performances. And I've been banned ever since. I think that Ireland should have, at Dublin at least, should have protested against the Archbishop's ban on a play that... Uh, for a play of a dramatist that was an Irishman. A damn sight better Irishman than the Archbishop because at least he knows the language of his country, which the Archbishop doesn't. Not only am I an Irishman, but I'm a Dublin a citizen of Dublin. The play was to be produced in my own city. I think it was an impudent and an uncalled for thing for him to ban a play written by me. One of my best plays. In a play that was hopeful and joyous and gay, 
There was nothing in it at all that anybody could object to. The hero, actually, is, a, is, is, is typical of the whole Catholic Church in Ireland, Father Nair. He's the dominant spirit in the whole play, urging the people to tidy up their towns, to paint their towns, to bring music to their villages, to bring art and literature everywhere that few Irishmen are gathered together. There can be nothing objectionable in that idea, can there? And that was the play he banned. <laughs> well, let him ban as much as he likes. <laughs> I can live without the Archbishop's blessing. Do you think the Roman Catholic Church has too much of a control over Ireland? The Roman Catholic control, in my opinion, is too much damn control over the whole world. And there's a special in particular and dominant and absolute control almost over Ireland. Over the southern part of Ireland, that is, the Republic of Ireland. It hasn't got control over the northern problem, which is mainly a Protestant one. Yes. And very bigoted, too. <laughs> one is just as bigoted as the other. They would protest against any play produced in Belfast that would have a laugh at a Protestant clergyman, I suppose, or any Protestant kind of practice. And the others would equally condemn and protest against a play criticizing the practices of the Catholic clergy. They're all the damn same. Wherever you get this dogmatic institutional religion, you get division, intolerance. It's only when people give up religion or the idea of religion altogether that you begin to get a bit of sense. Fair dealing and yeah. decent living. The English people are completely indifferent to religion. At least nine-tenths of them are. And consequence, you can live in peace in England anywhere you go. They don't ask you what you are or where you go or what you believe. They don't care. So you choose to live in here in Turkey? I think they are any place rather, in England. Rather than any place in England. Yeah. I'm not looking for a shortcut to playwriting, but... What method do you follow when you're writing? For instance, do you compose on a typewriter? No, I don't compose on a typewriter. I write, I've written all my plays out in longhand, not consecutively, not page by page in a copybook the way many dramatists have done, but jotting down thoughts and... Uh, and I couldn't do that when I was working. Yes. You see, then it would be impossible for me to sit down unless I spent the whole damn night at it. I used to occasionally, at dinner hour, breakfast hour, I used to carry a kind of a book with me and jot down uh, thoughts and bits of dialogue that came into my head on the play that I was walking at. And it might be the last scene, or it might be the third scene, it might be the first scene. And if I hadn't got the book with me, I'd look about for a scrap of paper and record them there before I went back to work. Then when I went home, I weaved them into the handwritten part, a section of the play. And that was all done. It took me some years. It took me two, or two years or so to write Juno, and many years to write The Plough and the Stars. And then I typed them roughly out on a typewriter. 
and amended all that and changed it if I thought a change necessary. And if I didn't like a phrase here, I took it out and put another in, so on, trying to improve it as much as I could. And then I did what I call the final draft, which was sent to the Abbey Theatre. But even, even then, when the draft came back and they were published, when I received the first galley proofs from the publisher, I went through that and sometimes I changed a little here and there or added a little phrase that had come into my mind that I thought were the recording. And that, I think, concluded the uh, writing of the play. But the play hadn't been written or wasn't written till the galley proofs were returned, corrected to the publisher. Then I considered the play written. And that took years of work. But how I was inspired by it, of course, is another thing. I was interested in everything that happened around me, and I'm interested still in everything that happens around me. Although I hadn't uh, what I would call keen sight that normal people have, I had a very keen sense of observation, and that gave me keen sight for the little foibles and little gestures and little eccentricities of that individual and the other individual that I never forgot once I saw them. And I had a very cute ear, very acute ear for any little phrase that interested me. It remained in my mind. I, I usually added to it. Or I wove another completely different phrase from it. But these phrases that I heard and the things that I saw were recorded in my mind and uh, selected then, added to, or changed to suit my own fanciful idea of what this character or that character might say in the play. It's a never-ending work. You must never separate yourself from life if you're going to write a play. You must be ready to hear everything and anything because you never know when a person may use an extraordinary and interesting remark that may be witty, unconsciously in most cases, but consciously to you. And you record that and you store it up and you may use it years afterwards. Your female characters, Juno, Nora, and, and Bessie, and others like them, they're always strong, and they seem to be trying to be a binding force in the family. Are these, are these typical of Irish women as you knew them? There are, there are thousands of Junos in the Irish slums. The Irish people are extraordinarily good and kind and generous and self-sacrificing among themselves, the working classes. If you visit the slums or lay, you have, you know, there's no use of visiting the slums. You have to live among them to know them. You can't know them any other way. It's impossible. And if you live among them, yeah. you'll find that there are thousands of Junos helping each other, helping each other out in any difficulty, in any illness. And if they can't help you positively, they'll help you in other ways by sympathy and kind words. Juno is not an uncommon thing in the slum. But my own mother was a typical example of what a Juno could be and what was.
But there are many more like her in the slums. I knew hundreds of them. And I had always a profound respect and regard for them, toiling through life under tremendous difficulties and keeping a bright heart among it all. You were very close to the poet William Butler Yeats. What sort of a man was he? He was romantic about Ireland and his poems, and I think romantic about Ireland in his plays. But he wasn't so romantic uh, about Ireland in the real issues of life that surrounded him and that confronted him. For instance, he wasn't very romantic when he stood on the Abbey stage denouncing the rioters in the Abbey Theatre on the night of the production of the, the Plough and the Stars. He was quite realistic. Yeats could be intensely realistic in dealing with the problem. Why did he write so differently from what he uh, felt in, in a practical sense? Then? He had been influenced, of course, by the old Irish saga, the old Irish mythical stories of kings and queens, and he wrote very beautifully about them. And he, he was a very great poet. Everybody, I think, admits that Yeats was a great poet, as far as I know. A few are being, beginning to question his his authenticity, or whatever you call it, as a poet. But I think Yeats and most literary men seem to agree that Yeats was an extraordinarily great poet. But Yeats, as well as being a great poet, was a great man. He's an extraordinary individual. And I don't think Ireland uh, will get his like again for many uh, a long year. Anything equal to the great Yeats. And uh, Ireland is... Uh, so once Yeats died, the Abbey Theatre died with him. The Abbey Theatre's never been anything like the Abbey Theatre that Yeats, and Lady Gregory, of course, uh, led and guided. It has become now a mean, vulgar, commonplace uh, exhibition of itself. I think the Abbey Theatre, I think God Almighty had a hand in um, obliterating the Abbey Theatre <laughs> when he set fire to it, when, when it went up in, in flames. Oddly enough, while the Stars and Stripes was being produced in it. <laughs> it was reduced to ashes. And the Abbey Theatre we knew it is no, no more now. There's not, a, there's not even one of the foundation stones left. They're going to erect this new great theatre, costing £250,000. There will be a fine building, I'm sure. The necessity that a theatre needs is a play, and where are they going to get them? There's nobody writing plays worth a damn in Ireland now. <laughs> How fantastic is that? <laughs> That's your man, Sean O'Casey, playwright, who was actually born John Casey on the 30th of March in 1880. And that was him talking a couple of years before he passed away. He left us on the 18th of September 1964. Uh, but probably one of the first playwrights 
of Irish playwrights of note to write about the Dublin working classes, and that, of course, is him talking uh, specifically about The Plough and the Stars, which is one of a trilogy. Uh, Shadow of the Gunman is the other one, and uh, I can't remember the third one. Anyway, it's one of a trilogy, uh, and rather good stuff. Celebrating, of course, or commiserating, or commemorating, I should say, the fact that it's 100 years. Uh, it was the 100 years since the Easter uprising. Um, and that's kind of it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm um, uh, back next week, so we're here every Thursday at 5 o'clock. This programme repeated again on uh, Monday mornings at 11.30. Very civilised, isn't it? Yes, I hope you're enjoying your tea. Uh, or, of course, if you missed that, you can catch us up uh, online uh, at Resonance FM and, of course, on the LondonLiteraryPubCrawl.com website there's a podcast page there oh and that's something that's something i wrote uh it's called the london literary pub crawl it deals with pubs literature and london or as it says on my twitter account beer and books what's not to like but thank you very much for your company i'll see you next week have a great time i'm nick henningham this is residence 104.4 fm <laughs>